passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Go ahead and get your outlines out. And while you're doing that, if you're a visitor, it's great to have you. As I always like to say, uh, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors, and just good to have you guys. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Jude. And if you are somebody who's new with us, let me take a moment to get you up to speed with Jude. Jude is a little tiny book. It's only 24 verses. It's the next to last book in the Bible, right before Revelation. And this message this morning is really a part two. Last week, I was planning to preach through Jude verses 5 through 7, and I only got through Jude verses 5 to 6. So today, we're going to have to cover verse 7, but I'm also going to take a few moments to get you up to speed on what we are covering in verses 5 and 6. And because we have some guests with us today, I'm also going to take a few moments to get everybody up to speed about what the book of Jude is actually all about. When we began studying Jude, right in the third verse, we ran across Jude's purpose for his letter. It was simply this, contend for the faith. He says, as Christians, we must fight for the faith that has been delivered once for all to the saints. Remember, the, the, the Christian faith has been delivered to us by God, not made up by us. We don't have a right to change us. And it's been delivered once for all by God. God's not going to change his mind and give us a different gospel later. This gospel that we have from G about Jesus being saved by him alone, it's good forever. That's always the way it will be. But the problem is that in Jude's day, people were creeping into the church. Now, these guys were not genuine Christians. They just looked like Christians. They played the Christian part and when they got into positions of power and influence, rather than encouraging people to follow Christ, they were actually trying to draw people away from Jesus Christ, undermining confidence in the gospel message, undermining confidence in the Bible. Now, what happened in Jude's day has continued, as we've seen, up to today, because today there are people who get involved in churches. They get involved in denominations. They get involved in schools. They get involved in Christian organizations. And they claim to follow Christ. But when they achieve a position of power and influence, once again, they undermine confidence in Jesus, trying to pull people away from Jesus. This is what Jude is writing about. This is why he urges us. Now, he pleads with us, contend for the gospel Fight for the gospel. Don't let anyone take you away from the gospel. Because if they do, you will no longer be saved. There's only one way to be made right with God, and that's through Jesus Christ alone. Last week, when we got to verses 5 through 7, what we found is that in those verses, Jude was trying to show us the seriousness of the issue at hand. This is not merely some kind of academic exercise. This is not merely something trivial. That people's eternal lives hang in the very balance. They must stay anchored to Jesus Christ. And in verses 5 through 6, what he did is give us two examples from history 
of people who walked away from Jesus, and it did not end well for them. Which is why he says, don't you walk away from Jesus. If you do, it won't end well for you either. Now, the first example that we looked at last week is in verse 5. And if you have your outline, it's right on the top of that. And this was the Exodus generation, where it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Jude reminds us that Jesus is not just active in the New Testament, but Jesus was very active in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, anytime you see God's people being saved, it's usually Jesus who is the one that is doing it. Just that in the Old Testament, he saved God's people in a lesser way, but in the New Testament, he saves us in a much greater way. Take the Exodus generation as an example. He saved them from slavery in Egypt, and he saved them from physical death. That's what Jesus did. But when it comes to the New Testament, Jesus takes on a body. Jesus dies on a cross. Jesus rises from the grave to save us from a much greater slavery, slavery to sin that every single one of us struggle with, and a much greater death, eternal damnation. That's what Jesus came to save us from. So Jude goes back to the Exodus generation. He says, they were saved by Jesus. They walked away from Jesus. It did not end well. This means Jesus was the one who sent the plagues on the Egyptians. Jesus was the one who parted the water. So the Israelites walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. Jesus is the one who gave them manna every morning. Of course, except for one day a week. Jesus is the one who gave them water from a rock twice so they didn't die of thirst. But how did the Exodus generation react to that? Were they filled with gratitude to Jesus? No. They were grumblers, whiners, complainers. Manna, again? It all came to a head, remember, when the Israelites got to the edge of the promised land. And they sent 12 spies in who spied it out for 40 days. Remember, they came back and 10 of them said, hey, the place looked great, but the people's huge. They looked like they all came off the cover of Muscle and Fitness magazine. And we're little puny runts. We can't conquer them. I give up. Let's go back to Egypt. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, no, guys. Yes, the people are giants. Yes, we are little grasshoppers in their eyes. But look what Jesus has done for us. He brought us out of Egypt. He brought us across the Red Sea. He has given us manna. Every single time we weren't going to make it, Jesus brought us through. And if Jesus could be trusted in the past, he can be trusted in the future. Unfortunately, as you know, the Exodus generation didn't choose to go with the two spies who expressed faith in Jesus, but they followed the Chen spies who rejected Jesus. And they wanted to go back to Egypt. And Jesus, the one that had saved them, became the Jesus who judged them. He said, you guys are going to walk in circles in the desert for 40 years until every last one of you is dead. Your children, those who are under 20 years old, it's when they grow up that they will go into that land not you. 
Jude's point is it really didn't work out well for the Exodus generation. When they were saved by Jesus, but then they turned their back on Jesus and were judged by Jesus. He says, look at you. You've received a much greater salvation from Jesus than they ever did. We must not turn our back on Jesus and drift away from him, or it will not end well for us, just like it did not end well for them. Then we got to verse 6 last week. It said this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Well, the last verse was about the Exodus generation who walked away from Jesus, and it did not end well. This is about angels who also turned away from Jesus. And guess what? It did not end well for them either. Last week, we studied these verses in much greater depth, and I'm not going to do that again this morning. I would encourage you to get online, listen to that message. A lot of interesting stuff with regard to this verse, but let me briefly summarize it for you. From what we can tell, according to Genesis 6, when there were angels that rebelled against God, and we know that they came to earth, they're called fallen angels, they're called demons, some particularly wicked demons or fallen angels seem to have possessed men in a very powerful way and in a very evil way in the time before the flood. Genesis chapter 6, the first four verses talk about this. In fact, they had so influenced the earth that Genesis chapter 6 says that at this point, the thought of every man and the inclination of every man was always evil all the time. That means it's even worse than our country is right now, just in case you're wondering. But that's how bad it was. And the response to that was Noah, the ark, and the flood where Jesus drowns everybody, hits the reset button on the planet, except for Noah and his family and a small set of animals, obviously, that come through. And what Jude is talking about is apparently at that time, what Jesus did is he took these particularly wicked and dark demons, and he put them in chains and bound them in a dark pit in the universe so they cannot influence the earth anymore. And there they will remain until the time of judgment. So Jude's point is simple. Didn't work well for the Exodus generation when they rebelled against Jesus. Didn't work well for the angels when they rebelled against Jesus. Don't rebel against Jesus. It will not end well for you. That brings us to the next verse, which is that we're going to spend most of our study in this morning now that I've set the stage. It's verse 7. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, what's happening in this verse? This is another example of Jesus stepping in and judging sin. What we're going to look at as we look at this verse is there's two angles to it. The first thing this verse talks about is homosexuality. Now you say it, it does? Well, when it's talking about homosexuality or Sodom and Gomorrah, you'll see in a moment that's definitely talking about homosexuality. The other thing it talks about is hell. 
that the way that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed is an earthly example of what eternal punishment looks like. Now, as I put this message together, I was planning on spending time on homosexuality and then time on hell, but as sometimes happens with me, I put it together and I have too much stuff. So we're only going to talk about homosexuality this morning, but there's plenty to talk about with that right here. So if you have your outlines, we're going to just cover point one, and it's this. Homosexuality. The Bible's teaching on homosexuality is clear. That's the key thing to understand. No story with the people of God was more impactful, I think, than the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That event is referenced over 20 times in other parts of the Bible, not just where it occurs in Genesis chapter 19. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is simply horrifying. It is devastating. Jude chapter 7 tells us that the reason these cities were destroyed in such a horrific way was because it was judgment against their sin, in particular against their sexual sin. Now in Jude's day and in uh, up to our day, the area where Sodom and Gomorrah are located next to the Dead Sea, it's a really sort of desolate disgusting place. It's a place where not a lot grows. It's a place where there's fissures in the earth, where steam and sulfur come out from the ground. It's an area where there's bubbling tar pits that are visually able to see, even today. But you need to know that wasn't always that way. And in fact, at one time, Sodom and Gomorrah was a really nice neighborhood, the kind of place you'd build a house in, the kind of place you want to live. Look what it says in Genesis 13 about Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. In other words, like Eden, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. And then the biblical author makes a comment. <clears throat> By the way, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a really nice place until Jesus unleashes judgment. So what moved Jesus to destroy these cities and the valley? Judas told us it was because of their sexual immorality. We covered this part a little bit last week. The Greek word here is the word pornea. We get our English word pornography from this word. It's sort of a junk drawer term. It's a catch-all term for any sexual expression outside of one man, one woman, in marriage until death do they part. That's biblically acceptable. Anything else is considered sexual immorality. That covers premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography online, lesbianism, gay lifestyle, bisexuality, transgender. Interestingly, the Greek here is descriptive. It's not just the Greek word pornea, but it has a little preposition in front of it. It's the ek preposition. That's an intensification preposition. So it wasn't just regular sexual immorality. It was extreme sexual immorality that Sodom and Gomorrah were known for and engaging in. We also see that Jude says they pursued um, what is unnatural desire. 
Now, that doesn't read like much, doesn't make much sense to us. The Greek is a little bit more descriptive. It literally reads, they pursued strange flesh, flesh that was not compatible with their own. That means men pursued men sexually. Women pursued women sexually. That's strange flesh. Flesh that is not, obviously, compatible with their own. So these people of the city were known for extreme sexual morality, part of which was homosexuality and lesbianism. And Judas told us, this is why Jesus unleashed destruction on that city. Well, why Judas told us why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, I think it's helpful for us to take a moment and go back to Genesis chapter 19 and read how the final straw broke the camel's back with regard to their destruction. Incidentally, this is not the only incident where this kind of stuff occurs in these cities. This is a normal pattern of behavior in these cities, which is why Jesus destroys them. So I have Genesis 19 in your outline. Let's go ahead and begin reading them. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Incidentally, the two angels look like men. Lot does not know that at this point, that they're angels. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, <clears throat> please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened guy. Unleavened, excuse me, baked them unleavened bread. And they ate. So what we have here is we have Lot, who is a relatively godly guy, living in an extremely ungodly society. He did not know these two men were angels, but he did know what typically happened to people who slept in the um, town square in the evening. And it was not a good thing. The place was not really friendly. Let's just see what typically happens. Genesis 19, 4 through 5. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Wow. All of the men of the city, both young and old, want to have homosexual gang rape on Lot's two visitors. I think Jude's got it right. That's extreme sexual immorality. That's going after strange flesh. But I want to pause and talk to you about this for a moment. You know, there's people out there and churches out there, I call them the spiritual terrorists, who claim to be Christians but who aren't really Christians, who try to take verses like this and passages like Genesis chapter 19 and explain it away. They say, oh, this isn't homosexual gang rape. That's not what's happening here. Didn't you read? Bring them out so we may know them. We just want to meet them. 
We just want to greet them. And they say that the big sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was inhospitality. Now, I'm almost ashamed to tell you that because that is such a vacuous argument. But I guarantee you're going to hear it as you're around people who want to justify homosexuality in the church. How do you answer them? Easy. Number one, Jude, which is also written scripture, has explained exactly what was happening. Jude was writing under inspiration and the authority of God. He tells us it's sexual immorality and going after strange flesh. Secondly, context is a clue. The Hebrew word uh, to know, it can literally mean to know someone like you shake somebody's hand in the foyer. And it also can mean to know someone in a much more intimate way like you would your spouse. Which one does it mean here? What you want to do is look for similar words in that context to see how they were used. Just three verses after this, Lot will pull a really bad dad move, and in frustration and terror, he'll say, don't rape these men. I have daughters who have never known a man. Why don't I bring them out to you? Now, obviously, that's not a good deal, but... To say that these daughters have never known a man doesn't mean they've never met a man. It obviously means they're virgins. So this means that this idea of know here is to sexually know these men. It continues. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Well, if this was all about just trying to meet and greet, trust me, he wouldn't be saying, don't act so wickedly. Lot knew what they wanted to do was evil. They knew what they wanted to do was evil, but they're going to do it anyway. Lot then says this, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. That's what we talked about a moment ago. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. As I told you, we have a major dad failure at this one. Good dads should be protecting their daughters. That's not what Lot's doing. But why does Lot even do this? Here's my thoughts. I think Lot is completely scared for his life at this point. He's thinking about saving his own flesh. Not the right thing to do. Completely wrong thing to do. But that's how terrified he is at this moment. And what do these guys say? But they said to him, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. And he's become the judge. Now, we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. We're going to gang rape those two guests of yours, but we're going to even gang rape you worse than we ever raped them. That's what they say. I mean, these guys are completely controlled by their homosexual lusts. They don't care about what they're doing, how it affects any other human being. They just want to have their sexual cravings satisfied. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they wore themselves out 
groping for the door. Now, you would think, after God strikes all the men of the city blind at this point, that they'd begin to wise up a little bit. Like, uh, hello, McFly, maybe this gang homosexual rape thing is not a good idea right now. Maybe this is a warning shot over the bow from God himself. We're all blind. They don't take the hint, do they? They literally wear themselves out, still groping for the door. You know what happens next. If you've been around church for a while, you know that the angels tell Lot and his family to leave right away, get out of town, and in the morning, fire and sulfur rain down on those cities, turning them into a literal lake of fire, an earthly prefiguration of the ultimate lake of fire, Jesus' ultimate judgment on sin and rebellion. I know what some of you are saying. Nice Bible story, Pastor. <laughs> like that actually happened. Interestingly, archaeologists tell us that this area of the Dead Sea is actually sort of on a fault. It's an area that's experienced a fair amount of volcanic activity. And we can see that by simply looking around the idea. There's been volcanic eruptions in this area. Also, this is an area that has oil underneath the earth. And during some of these volcanic eruptions in the past, not only has molten lava shot into the air, but burning oil and tar has shot along with it, covering the valley like in a sea of fire. Exactly what God says in Genesis took place. So we've seen what happened to these people, but why did this happen? God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, for their sexual sin, especially for their homosexual sin. Now at this point, after having read Jude, verse 7, after having read Genesis chapter 19, at least the front end of it, I'm beginning to think that probably homosexuality is not a good idea. That God doesn't seem too much in favor of that. Probably something to stay away from. But if you look at our society, that's the opposite message that we find. Isn't it true that our society looks at homosexuality and the whole LGBTQ lifestyle and says it's a good thing, it's a positive thing, it's something that you must accept, something that you must embrace? Huge pressure on that right now that the LGBTQ lifestyle would be celebrated, that it would be considered normal, that it would be considered healthy. There's entire denominations that not only now marry homosexuals, but ordain homosexuals as clergy. Say, so how much pressure are we receiving? Here's something I read this past week as I was preparing for this message. Franklin Graham was actually doing an evangelistic tour in Europe. And if I remember this correctly, it was in June of this past year. And he's doing it like his father did, Billy Graham. You know, they go to different towns and rent arenas and invite people in. And he just preaches the gospel message, real simple and clear. And it came to Liverpool where he planned to do this. And the stadium in Liverpool actually canceled his coming. They would not let him go there. 
And they, they did that because of the amount of pressure they received from the LGBTQ community. There was an article that was out there, and in the article was a quote from the Reverend Andrew Porshu Kane, who is a gay Anglican priest, about why he was so happy that the Reverend Franklin Gam was not allowed to come to his town and talk about Jesus. And I have this quote for you right in your, your outlines. It says, Mr. Graham is entitled to his opinions and is free to exercise them, but there are consequences for doing so when they are so repugnant and divisive. It would be good if other venues on your gospel tour would also exercise their freedom and not spread your message of hate towards the LGBT, LGBTQ community. Okay, well, what does Franklin Graham say that is so hateful to the LGBTQ community? I looked it up, and it's simply this. He says the Bible does not endorse the homosexual lifestyle. He says it is not a lifestyle to be celebrated, but a sin to be repented of. That's it. And for that, he is uninvited. What does the Bible say about the LGBTQ lifestyle? We've looked at Jude, verse 7. We've looked at Genesis, chapter 19. What I want to do for the balance of our time together is simply widen our lens. Just jump our finger through a couple key texts to see what the Bible says about homosexuality so we know the truth, not just hear what society tells us is the truth. Let's go from Genesis to Leviticus. The point is this, Leviticus considers homosexuality a serious sin. You go into Leviticus, into the holiness codes, and you find two clear condemnations of homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Two very clear condemnations of homosexuality in this. Holiness code. But the spiritual terrorists that creep into churches say, Leviticus, you're reading something from Leviticus and saying it's actually applicable for today? I mean, that's an Old Testament thing. We've left that far behind. Then they say, well, besides, the kind of homosexuality that's being talked about in Leviticus is only the kind that was being practiced in Canaanite pagan worship. It's not forbidding the, the loving, kind, consensual homosexuality that takes place today. God celebrates that and endorses that. Really? It doesn't say anywhere in the text that the only kind of homosexuality that's being prohibited is the kind that took place in Canaanite pagan worship. And if that was true, that would have to apply to the other verses that come before them and to the verses that come after them. Like the verse that comes before it that says, by the way, you're not allowed to be sexually, int sexually intimate with your neighbor's wife. Oh, that just applies for the Canaanites, but not for you. <laughs> you can sleep around. No, it doesn't make any sense. You're not to throw your child into the flame and burn them alive. 
That doesn't just apply to Canaanite pagan worship. That applies all the time. Or the verse after it that says human beings are not to have be sexually intimate with animals. That doesn't just apply to Canaanite pagan worship. That applies to all the time. So, these verses are still applicable, even though they come out of Leviticus. A couple other things to tell you I have in your outline here. Leviticus. In Leviticus, homosexuality is the only sin called an abomination. There are some sins called abominations as a group, but the only sin given the title an abomination is homosexuality. Secondly, in Leviticus, homosexuality is also the only sin with a mandatory death penalty for both parties involved. Are we beginning to see the seriousness of homosexuality as a sin in God's eyes? It's a required death penalty in the book of Leviticus. And Jesus carried out the death penalty in the book of Genesis against Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's go to Romans. <clears throat> Romans describes homosexuality as evidence of a life that is now far from God. Most of you don't know this, but the city of Rome was a very sexually depraved city. It was a place where homosexuality and lesbianism was regularly practiced. To give you an idea about how sexually depraved the city was, I did a little, little research this week. From the year 31 B.C. to 100 A.D., during the time when the biblical books were written, there were 12 Roman emperors. Almost every single one of them was either homosexual or bisexual. Almost none of them were actually straight. When the book of Romans was written, Nero was the ruler of Rome from 54 A.D. to 68 A.D. Nero was a bisexual. In fact, there was a little ditty that was spoken uh, on the street that we have from historical evidence written down. Nero was called every man's woman and every woman's man. Didn't matter what sex you were, Nero could find a way to be sexually intimate with you. It didn't matter how many people it was. That is how far gone Roman society was. So when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, it's only natural that he'll bring up this subject of homosexuality because it's so practiced in their society. Now in the opening verses of Romans, Paul talks about people who are far from God. And he talks about it this way. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says what happened is people, they turned away from the one God in the universe. And what happened? They began to fashion gods on their own. They began to fashion images of people, animals, birds, creeping things, and they started to worship those things. You see, what happens is everybody is going to worship something. It's either going to be the one true God in the universe, or you'll make up your own God and start worshiping it. And you think you'll be really smart. But Paul says, in reality, 
Your mind is darkened and you're completely foolish when you do that. But then Paul continues. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. The key phrase here is that God gave them up as they continued to worship the items they made up as God. God gave them up, and what it is here, he gives them up to their heterosexual lusts. Sex becomes their gods. They are for all about sleeping around, about lusting around. Sex consumes them because they've left God. And then Paul continues. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So you see the progression here. People reject God. They start to make images and worship those things as God. If they continue down that path, then they start to worship sex as God. They continue down that path. Eventually they get so disorientated, they start to worship homosexuality as their God. Say, so is that really true? As a pastor, I sometimes end up counseling people who are struggling with sexual sin and sexual addictions. Sometimes counseling people who are struggling with porn addictions on the internet. And what you always find is the case. It starts out as light core porn, but that soon is not enough. Then it gets to more intimate and darker porn. And eventually it starts to go to kinkier and weirder porn. And eventually it ends up in homosexual porn. It's the natural progression of people turning their backs on God and going farther and farther from Him. So, what Paul says is homosexuality is actually rebellion against God on the horizontal level that began with rebellion against God on the vertical level. When you rebel against knowing Him, that's the logical extension of that, is homosexuality. It doesn't matter if it's a committed homosexual relationship. It doesn't matter if the person claims they're just being true to their feelings. It doesn't matter if the person says they were born that way. What people are doing is suppressing the truth about God and about themselves. And then Paul ends with this, he says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God's judgment on homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah was that Jesus carried out the death penalty. God's judgment on homosexuality in the book of Leviticus was the death penalty. You get to the book of Romans, and what does Paul say is the proper judgment for homosexuality? The death 
penalty. Now, I am not saying this because Christians should run out and kill homosexuals. Far be it from that. That is not our job at all. We are to love everyone and to tell everyone about Jesus. But the reason I point this out to you is you need to understand how abhorrent homosexuality is in the eyes of God. Because the society around us is telling us the exact opposite message. That it's a good thing. It's a normal thing. It's a thing to be celebrated. And yet, God says, no, it's a completely repulsive sin to him. Let me come to one last set of verses. It comes from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians reminds us that practicing homosexuals of any type are not part of the kingdom of God. We learned a moment ago that Rome was a very sexually deviant place. Corinth was also an extremely sexually loose and deviant place. The best way to describe Corinth in the ancient world is like Las Vegas in the modern world. And you know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. In fact, they even had a term used in the first century called to Corinthianize. It meant to sleep around, to be sexually loose when you were away from town. That shows you what the city of Corinth was like. Amazingly, Paul planted a church there, and there were Christians in the church there. Paul wrote a number of letters to that church, probably at least three that we know about. Two of those are in our scriptures. And you know, many of the people in the, that church came from a very sexually rough background. But look what Paul says to them. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The scriptures are extremely clear that all of those practicing homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now what about these people who say, well, I'm a gay Anglican priest who's practicing my homosexuality. I'm like, well, whatever you're doing, you're not putting your finger in the text. It's very clear. You may claim to know God, but you do not know God. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it says. Well, then some people come along and say, well, I have homosexual desires. What am I to do with those? Real simple. Be celibate. Same as anybody with heterosexual desires who's not married. <laughs> Be celibate until you are married. Just the reality when it comes to homosexual desires, you can't get married. You have to choose to be celibate for life if that's the direction that you feel you can, does not change. The other thing I need to point out for you, it says here, men who practice homosexuality. Incidentally, um, that's sort of a... a a, what do you call it, a phrase. 
It's not a good, accurate representation of the Greek words behind it. It's a phrase used in many modern translations. There's nothing wrong with that phrase. It's an accurate phrase, but the Greek is much more vivid if you go under the hood. The Greek actually uses two different words for homosexuality here. The first one is malakoi, which means soft, passive, effeminate homosexuality. This is the guy who likes to function as sort of as a woman. And then it also uses in that phrase, arsenkoitoi, which literally means men betters. This is the active, masculine, more aggressive homosexuality. Wonder well, why does Paul use these two terms that are on opposite sides of the homosexual spectrum? It's this. Paul uses both terms because in this passage, he is trying to emphasize all forms of homosexuality are not, if you're a practicing homosexual, it doesn't matter what form you're taking it, you're not going to be part of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you say you're committed. It doesn't matter if you say you're monogamous. It's not part of God's kingdom. Now, in a message, there's two things that a pastor wants to do. Part of it is you want to give truth. And I tend to give a lot of truth. And I think we needed to get the truth out in this particular topic because the world is not giving you the truth when they say it's just a normal, acceptable thing. But we don't just give out truth. We give out love. And as I come to the end here, I want to give out some of that love and some of that hope. I want you to give, give you good news. I want to give you hope for the homosexual, hope for the lesbian, hope for the transgender, hope for the bisexual, and you know what? Hope for the rest of us who are heterosexual that sometimes struggle with sexual desires in ways we should not. You know what that hope is? It's not hormone therapy. It's not counseling. That hope is Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Coming immediately off these verses, Paul says this, But such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Those sexual sins which dominated your life, which controlled your life, are no longer your identity in your life. Because Jesus Christ washed you. He washed your sins away when you trusted in Him. He sanctified you, which is He made you holy. He broke the power of sin in your past and enables you to live a, Christ, a life for Christ in the present. He justified you. He made you right before God. Folks, when sin is the problem, Jesus is always the answer. Remember what he came to do? He came to save God's people. In the Old Testament, it was in a lesser way. He saved God's people in the Exodus from physical slavery and physical death. But Jesus came and took on a body to die in your place for your sin so he can save us from the ultimate slavery that every one of us battles with, which is slavery to sin. He can save us from the ultimate death that every single one of us deserve, which is in the lake of fire. That if you confess your sins, you trust in Jesus to forgive your sin. 
that you choose to live your life for Jesus, making him number one in your life. What the Bible says is you are a new creation, and Jesus breaks the power of sin in your life. It doesn't matter what sin it is. It could even be a powerful and deep-rooted sin like homosexuality. Jesus breaks that too. You say, does that really happen? It does. When I was in college, I was a computer science major. As a computer science major, you know, in college you have an advisor. My advisor was an interesting guy. One time in class, he shared, us, shared with us his testimony. When he was a young man in college, he got involved in the homosexual lifestyle. And he was committed to being a homosexual until somebody told him about He began reading the Bible. He trusted in Jesus, was born again. Jesus took away his desire for homosexuality. He saw it as the repulsive sin to God as it is. Eventually, he got married. Eventually, he had children. Ended up as the computer science professor at the college I went. And he was also attending the local evangelical free church in that community. His life was completely changed by Jesus, who broke the power of sin, even homosexual sin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your Son came not just to save us eternally, but to break the power of sin in our life today to make us into a new creation. That where sin is always the problem, that Jesus is always the solution. And I pray for anyone this morning who is struggling with sexual sin and sexual temptations, whether that may be a homosexual temptation to sin or even just normal heterosexual struggles. I pray that as they sink their teeth into knowing you, Jesus, and walking with you, Jesus, that you would give them the victory over sin that is found only through you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.